encourage you to turn to the book of Titus. We made a start last week by looking at the entire book, and tonight we'll look at the first four verses, Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Father, as we come to your word now, we say again that we stand in awe of you and we pray that you would so speak to us that our awe would increase. God, that our love for you would increase, that our faith in your Son would increase, that our commitment to serve you would increase, and that we would leave tonight saying with full hearts, we stand in awe of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you spent even a small amount of time reading the New Testament letters, I'm certain that you've noticed that these letters begin a little bit differently than the letters that we're accustomed to receiving ourselves, either in our mailboxes or our inboxes. Because modern letters, first of all, begin, of course, by addressing the recipient of the letter, don't they? Hello, Annie. Dear Mr. Hawthorne, or a little less personal, to our value customer, However it begins, our letters begin by addressing the recipient. But in ancient times, and particularly in these New Testament letters, correspondence usually began with the author's name rather than that of the recipient's. Paul, a bondservant of God, or Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so on. And in addition, these letters are somewhat different than the letters we write and open because the opening salutations of these New Testament letters tend to be a little bit more formal than the way we write today. As in all of his epistles, Paul began this one by stating his credentials. It's kind of a formal thing. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we sometimes do the same thing when we send a letter and sign at the end particularly if it's a business letter to someone we don't know. In other words, if I'm writing to some denominational bigwig that I don't know or to the church's insurance company, I'll usually sign my letters, Court Strassner, Pastor, Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. So in some ways, Paul's signing of his name and telling us his credentials is not totally unfamiliar, but his signature here at the beginning of the letter is still a little bit odd because Titus was Paul's good friend. Titus actually knew already that Paul was an apostle and that he was a bondservant of Jesus. Just like my friends know that I'm the pastor of this church. So, for instance, if I write Anthony a letter about the work in Ethiopia, I don't write the letter and then sign my name, Court Strassner, Pastor, Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. But Peter and James and Paul and Jude, these New Testament writers, would have signed it that way. Indeed, they usually did sign their letters at the top that way. And that sort of formality may throw us off, but it seems to be part and parcel of ancient custom. And we're going to notice in just a few moments that God put those formal titles there for reasons that had to do with something besides just ancient custom. But nonetheless, these New Testament 
epistles, particularly in their opening lines, don't always read like we're accustomed to. They don't seem like letters to us when we open them up. And yet, for all their foreignness and their formality, I hope to show you tonight that this letter from Paul to Titus really was an intimate correspondence of the same type that you might receive from your own friend. Because even though the order of this letter is a little bit strange to us, Paul's letters, including this one to Titus, contain all the same elements of a letter that you might write to a fellow church member or to your college roommate or to a childhood friend. Paul began with a warm greeting for his friend. We do that. He explained in a few lines what the occasion of the letter was. We usually do that. Then he wrote the letter itself. Of course, that's what a letter is. And then just like we do, Paul always signed his name, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, with his own hand. He always put his signature on the letter, and we do that as well. So we need to see this letter for what it really is. It is a, a warm, personal correspondence between two men who were friends, two men who loved one another, verse 4, like a father loves a son and like a son loves a father. Of course, it's more than a letter, isn't it? It's Holy Scripture. And so it comes with the same authority that any other part of the Bible comes with. And yet we need to recognize that as Holy Scripture, it's a letter. And we need to read it that way between these two men. We mustn't allow the somewhat formal nature of Paul's salutations here in the beginning and the ancient way that he sort of orders the letter to throw us off. It's not an impersonal memorandum. It's not merely a textbook. It's not just a to whom it may concern kind of letter either. This is correspondence between two dear friends. In the same way that we might write, Dear Jim, Nancy gave us the report from the doctor, and so I thought I'd write to cheer you up in the Lord. Paul's letter, though written in a different kind of order, is the same kind of thing. If Paul had written in the 21st century instead of the 1st century, his letter would probably have begun something like this. Dear Titus, I thought I'd send you a few lines of instruction and encouragement to help you build up the faith and knowledge of those who are chosen of God. So it is a personal letter. And it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's Holy Scripture as well. And because of that, it's more than a letter. And because it's more than a letter, we need to take a close look at what Paul says, even in his opening salutations. And so I want to begin tonight by having you to think with me about the author of the letter. First of all, the author of the letter. Every one of Paul's letters, this one included, for obvious reasons, begins with the very same word, Paul. All of his letters begin with the word Paul, for obvious reasons. Paul's the author. But Paul, let's not go too fast, Paul is more than just a name, isn't it? There's an amazing story behind that name, isn't there? This is a man who was infamous for his persecution of Christians. So infamous, in fact, that when he himself became a Christian, the local church folks couldn't believe it and they wouldn't at first allow him to join the church. They were afraid of him. This was the man who had thrown Christians into prison. This was the man who had supervised over the very first Christian martyrdom. This was the man who was, for those first century people, the quintessential enemy of God. The picture in the dictionary next to the phrase enemy of God in their minds was this 
man. And yet now, in the beginning of this letter, he's calling himself not an enemy of God, but a bondservant of God. What a change had come over this one-time blasphemer. And what hope that the blasphemers in your workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood can be rescued as well. This man who had once ridden to Damascus, Acts 9, 2, to have Christians bound and brought to Jerusalem is now bound himself to Jesus. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. What exactly is a bondservant? What does that word mean? We don't use that terminology in our everyday conversation, do we? So what is a bondservant? Well, it help you to realize that this word here translated bondservant more often than not is translated as slave in the rest of the New Testament. It's a Greek word that in general means slave. So what Paul is saying right off the top in essence is, Titus, I've become a slave of Jesus. I've placed myself in utter submission to him. I'm not just his employee, loyal though I may be. I'm more than that. I'm his slave. I am his bondservant. And perhaps the translators use the word bondservant instead of the word slave because Paul was subjected to Jesus willingly. His was a willing, voluntary, joyful submission. And the word bondservant probably does better convey the willing nature of Paul's service. And yet, willing though Paul's service was, it was still an absolute surrender to the will and to the way and to the calling of Jesus. Slavery, yet joyful, voluntary slavery. Now, there's a beautiful picture of that in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. You could turn there if you like. In that chapter, Deuteronomy 15, God commanded His people, Israel, to release any slaves that they had who were also Israelites, to release domestic slaves after six years of service. No one was allowed to keep a fellow Israelite as a slave beyond the sixth year, with one exception, Deuteronomy 15, 16, and 17. It shall come about if he, the slave, says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door and he shall be your servant forever. Hear that again. Every slave must go free at the end of the sixth year, except if the slave comes to the master and says, I don't want to leave because I love you. I love your household. I fared well with you. And the master was to take an awl and pierce the ear of the servant through, leaving a mark. And the servant was to be his servant forever. That's a perfect picture of what Paul says about himself in verse one, a perfect picture of Paul's bond service. Yes, he was God's slave. Yes, he put himself in absolute subjection to his master, but he was in that place willingly because like the slaves of the Old Testament, he loved God and he loved his household and he fared well with his master and he didn't want to go out from him. 
And so Deuteronomy 15 is a perfect picture of the kind of service that Paul gave to God. And really, it's a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be like in general, isn't it? Each of us ought to have, as it were, a hole in his or her ear. Why? Because we love God and His household. Because we have fared well with Him and we don't want to leave His service. And oh, how well we have fared with Him, haven't we? God has given us His beloved Son. God has forgiven our sins. God is preparing a home for us on high. Who would want to go anywhere else? Who would want to serve anyone else? If Jesus had and hands and feet were pierced for us, then surely our ears should be pierced for Him. Surely all of us should be willing bondservants of the Lord. Are you? Is your ear, as it were, pierced with God's all? Are you His servant forever? Paul was. And as the servant of God, his particular calling, he tells us, was as an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what did that mean? Well, it meant a lot, actually. But Paul just gives us the very basics down at the end of verse 3. To be an apostle was, at its most basic level, to be entrusted with the proclamation of God's word, to be called, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to preach the good news of Jesus. That was an apostle, and that was Paul. That was the, the form that his bondservant's service took on. He was a missionary preacher. But notice the order. Bondservant of God, first. Apostle of Jesus Christ, second. The reason Paul was a missionary preacher was not because it was glamorous or exciting, but because before he was a missionary preacher, before he was an apostle, he was a bondservant. And that's helpful for us to see. Paul did what he did. He fulfilled his role as an apostle because he was first a bondservant. And that means that you and I can learn something from Paul's self-description here. Even though we're not missionary preachers, even though we can never be apostles in the special New Testament sense that Paul was, yet, Though none of us are apostles, all of us are, many of us are, I hope, the Lord's bondservants. And as bondservants of God, we can imitate Paul by fulfilling whatever role God has assigned to us with the same zeal and for the same reason that Paul fulfilled his role as an apostle. God has not entrusted you with the same tasks as Paul, but he has entrusted some of you with a Sunday school class or with a position in one or the other of the ministries in the church or with the ability to give financially or some of you with time on your hands to pray. He has gifted you with relationships with lost people. He has given you some of you children to raise for Jesus. You don't have the same job as Paul had, but you can have the same attitude as Paul had. You can be a bondservant fulfilling your role with the same zeal that he fulfilled his. But the question is, is there a hole in your ear? Are you really a bondservant? Are you really a willing, joyful servant of God? And if you are, 
you will take whatever it is that God has entrusted to you and you'll run with it. And you must run with it. Paul gave his life to God's calling, namely the calling of an apostle. That's why he took the time to write this letter. He had a deep concern that the churches on the island of Crete were walking in the gospel that God had sent him to proclaim. And Paul knew just the man to help them do that. Which brings us to our second of three headings. We've considered the author of this brief letter. Now secondly, let's think about the recipient of the letter. The recipient of the letter. And it's obvious, isn't it? This letter, as we've been saying, and as the title makes clear, was addressed, verse 4, to Titus. Titus, my true child in a common faith, Paul calls him. Who was Titus? The New Testament doesn't tell us a lot about Titus, but we do know a few things. We know according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, that Titus was not Jewish, he was Greek. And thus it's quite probable, being Greek, that he was converted to Christ through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, who did so much ministry in the Greek world and among the Gentile people. We also know from Galatians 2 that Titus had been with Paul almost from the very beginning of Paul's missionary career because at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he brings Titus with him back to Jerusalem. So it would seem that Titus probably was converted on Paul's first missionary journey and immediately began to serve with Paul and to travel with Paul. And then we know that after those early beginnings, Titus eventually became one of Paul's most trusted emissaries not only was he in crete when this letter was written verse 5 undertaking the heavy challenge of getting the cretan churches organized but we also learn from the book of second corinthians that titus before he was in crete was in corinth helping that troubled church and we also know from second timothy 4 that at the end of paul's life titus was doing missionary work in modern day croatia So he traveled quite a bit and he was always going out on Paul's behalf and on God's behalf doing the work of the ministry. And yet, the Bible says very little else about him. Titus never wrote a New Testament book like Paul's associate Luke. His name is never mentioned in the book of Acts like Silas and Barnabas were. And he clearly wasn't the same kind of leader and preacher that Paul was. He was just Titus. But what he was, apparently, was a long-standing, dependable part of Paul's missionary team. What he was, was a reliable, faithful worker in the gospel cause. And every church needs a few people of Titus's. In fact, you know what was striking about his trip to Corinth? Before he was in Crete, he was in Corinth. And what's striking about that is that the church in Corinth was in awful shape. In fact, if you read the New Testament, it soon becomes clear that the church in Corinth was fairly famous for the awful shape that it was in. That's how they're remembered today. This was the most troubled, the most bizarre, the most frustrating of all the New Testament churches. And not only did Titus go to help that church, but we read in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 and 17, that he actually volunteered for that job. So you imagine... The worst church in the New Testament, as far as we can tell, all of these problems, moral problems, theological problems, problems with the Lord's Supper, problems with with, 
uh, miraculous gifts, any kind of problem you can think of, it seems the Corinthians had it. And I don't know if it exactly happened this way, but you can almost picture Paul getting word again from Corinth and just wringing his hands at all the problems that are going on there. And then perhaps turning to his mission team and saying, maybe with a little bit of doubt in his face, any volunteers? And Titus's hand immediately goes up. I'll go. He went willingly. And I just point that out so that I can ask you if that's the attitude that you have towards serving the Lord. Lord, I'll go. I'll sign up. I'll pitch in. Somebody just tell me what needs to be done and I'll do it. Perhaps it was just that kind of attitude that caused Paul to think of Titus, verse 4, as his true child. The two men had a common faith and a common desire to serve the Lord in the churches. And thus they were like father and son. And I say that every church needs its Tituses. Faithful, reliable, always ready to serve, go-getters. This church has them. Are you one of them? As you consider that question, you'll be helped to notice exactly why Titus was on this island of Crete and what Paul wanted him to do. Why was he there and what did Paul want him to do? So having considered the letter's author and its recipient, think with me finally about the occasion for the letter. The occasion for the letter. Why did Paul write to Titus? Well, we don't know exactly when, but sometime during the course of Paul's ministry, perhaps after the book of Acts had actually finished, Paul had traveled to this Mediterranean island called Crete. It's just below the southern tip of Greece. And Paul had gone there and he had preached and gathered some converts in the various cities and towns on Crete. And according to Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he left Titus there on the island to organize those converts into churches and to appoint elders in every city. But for Paul, it wasn't enough simply to do his preaching and to leave Titus behind and then to go on to the next destination and the next preaching point. No, Paul apparently took Crete with him in his heart once he had moved on. And so sometime after his initial visit to Crete, he wrote to Titus on that island to make sure that the gospel with which he had been entrusted was still prospering. Specifically, you're going to see that his concern, his gospel concern for the people on Crete consisted of four layers in verses 1 and 2. First, Paul was concerned, verse 1, for the faith of those chosen of God, for the faith of the Christians on the island of Crete. He wanted to make sure that the Christian believers were still trusting Jesus, that their faith was real, that they had not given up. Second, Paul wanted to make sure that whatever faith the Christians did have was based, still in verse 1, on the knowledge of the truth. He wrote, for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. Paul's day was a lot like our own. In other words, in the first century, various opinions and pseudo-Christian sects abounded all over the place, just like they do today. And Paul was writing to make sure that the churches in Crete were not susceptible to these groups, to groups like the circumcision down in verse 10. Paul was concerned in the same way that pastors today worry that their people not be deceived by the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons 
or the New Age movement. So Paul was concerned that the Cretans maintained their faith and that their faith was in accordance with truth. And then there were two practical reasons for these initial two concerns. Paul was concerned first about faith, second about truth, because third, faith that is built on truth will always lead at the end of verse 1 to godliness. He wrote, For the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Faith built on truth leads to godliness. We saw this last week, didn't we? Paul wanted the Cretans to believe rightly and to behave rightly. More precisely, he wanted the Cretans to believe rightly so that they would behave rightly. And fourthly, Paul was so concerned about faith and truth and godliness because these three things are what give us the hope, verse 2, of eternal life. Isn't that what he says there? I'm writing to you, Titus, in the hope of eternal life. Now, I'm sure that Paul had hope of his own eternal life and that that's perhaps partially what he meant. But given what he says in verse 1, it seems that he was writing because of his great hope that the Cretans would also have eternal life if their faith was according to truth and leading to godliness. In short, Paul is saying at the beginning of verse 2 that he wants to make sure the Cretans go to heaven. He wants to make sure that they believe in such a way and live in such a way that there would be no doubt that heaven is where they were headed. Again, if we could put Paul's thoughts into a more modern form of letter writing, verses 1 and 2 might read something like this. Dear Titus, I'm writing to you because I'm still concerned about the people in Crete. I want to make sure they go to heaven. I want to be certain that they gain eternal life. And to that end, Titus, I want you to remind them to continue in the faith, to be certain that the faith that they continue in is according to Bible truth. And not only that, Titus, I want you to remind them that if their beliefs are right, then their behavior will be right as well. That faith and truth always lead to godliness. And the reason, Titus, I'm so concerned about faith and truth and godliness is because I want them to know that they have eternal life. And if their faith is built on truth and leads to godliness, all that together will give them the certainty, the hope, the surety that they are going to heaven. That's the gospel. And of course, by means of the prophets, God, who cannot lie, had promised this gospel, verse 2b, long ages ago. But Paul realized in verse 3 that he himself now, along with his messenger Titus, had responsibility for making that gospel known. Faith built on truth, leading to godliness, gives us the hope of eternal life. That was Paul's burden. And though we are not apostles, that is the burden, the heartbeat of every pastor who's worth his salt. Every decent pastor wants to make sure that those people to whom God has entrusted him and whom God has entrusted to him make it to heaven. He wants to make sure as far as he can humanly that his people are going to heaven. And therefore, every decent pastor is at pains to make sure his people's faith is real. 
to make sure that it's according to truth, that they're not carried away by errors, to remind them that faith that does not lead to godliness is not real faith, that faith without works is dead and therefore cannot save you. Every pastor who's worth his pay and who's worth a dime cares about those things. And so, if it seems to you like I sometimes preach as though I think you all may be lost, I hope you understand where I'm coming from. I don't think you're all lost. But it's not my job to decide who is and who isn't. My job is to preach and to live and to teach and to counsel in such a way that each and every one of you is given every warning and every encouragement not to fall away from the faith. Not to fall afoul of the truth. Not to go astray from it. But rather to believe and to live in godliness. I'm concerned with Paul that my people will believe the whole gospel and that therefore they will have a genuine hope of eternal life. And I should say that each of you, even though you're not apostles and you're not pastors, ought to have a similar heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Every single one of you who is a believer ought to have a deep and Pauline kind of concern for the other people in this room. That they don't fall away. That they keep on in the faith. That they live like Christians and therefore have hope of eternal life. Every one of you ought to long that our church and everyone in it prospers and grows and goes to heaven. And that means that every one of you ought to be involved in relationships of accountability, both giving it and receiving it. Every one of you ought to be regular and serious in your prayers for our congregation, for one another. Every one of you ought to serve the church in ways that will help us all continue in the faith and in the truth and toward godliness. That was the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul for the churches on Crete. That was the heartbeat of Titus, his messenger. That's the heartbeat of every faithful pastor and really it ought to be the heartbeat though not the full-time occupation of every Christian. I long to see God's people walking in faith, built on truth, according to godliness, leading to the hope of eternal life. That is the Christian's heartbeat. And the question tonight is simply, is that your heartbeat? 